Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Matt Mitchell, the running editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. All right. So for this week's episode, I spoke to Travis Soares about the recent fastest known time he set on the Sierra Peak section, which, if you're unfamiliar, is a list of 247 significant peaks in Northern California's Sierra Nevada range. I've mentioned this project maybe a handful of times in past running through the news episodes, and I still think it's one of the most wildly ambitious FKT attempts in recent memory. All told, Travis climbed the 247 peaks, which included over a dozen technical California 14ers, nearly 1,900 miles of combined trail and off-trail travel, and over 700,000 feet of elevation gain in just 117 days, which edged out the record set by his climbing partner, Nathan Longhurst, who also completed the list. Travis was nice enough to call in from his van to give me an impromptu trip report before he headed back up to Yosemite to start work on his next big objective. We talked about a bunch of things, including the history of the SPS list, how the project came together, the differences between taking on a challenge of this scale solo versus with a partner, the many, many highs and lows, and a whole lot more. And I also just want to say that if you're enjoying listening to the conversations I've been having on the show and find yourself wanting to get more into trail running, I'd encourage you to sign up for a Blister membership so you can send us an email and get my personal recommendations to help you find the right pair of running shoes. Check out the link in the show notes for more info on that, as well as all the other benefits becoming a Blister member gets you. So with that, let's get right into my chat with Travis. All right, Travis, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, man. So I've discussed your project, the SPS list FKT attempt that you recently completed on the show a few times. And I want to get into like the nitty and gritty of it all today. But I thought we would first start by like talking about what that project is. Like what is the SPS list? Yeah. So the SPS stands for Sierra Peak Section List, which was created by the Sierra Club in the 1950s. And basically the list includes the most prominent, uh, iconic and tallest peaks throughout the entire range of the Sierra, spanning like 400 miles down to the southern tip all the way up to Tahoe. And basically how they created the list, they divided the mountain range up into uh, 24 different sub areas and chose like basically the tallest or just coolest peaks. And then uh, like a lot of the smaller ones around it. So it's not like a, it's not like a a highest peak list, which is actually kind of cool because you, you end up climbing some smaller ones that are actually um, also really fun. But basically like if you were to get up to any high point in the Sierras and you look around at, like all the mountains that you're like, oh, I want to go, go climb that. It's pretty much like that. Um, so when did kind of people start attempting to like set records in terms of like how fast they can climb all the peaks? Like when did it kind of become competitive? Do you know? I think probably not until until Nathan and I showed up. I think like so yeah. There's only been like 81 or so finishers over the course of the 70 years that the list has been created. And I think the fastest someone had done it 
uh, was like three years is what I heard. And I don't think anyone was really like trying to go as fast as they could um, until now. So basically that's was sort of the appeal of the project to, to like push the, the limits on what is possible for it. Yeah, I think how I kind of learned about the SPS list was through Bob Bird and his website. Are you familiar with Bob? Oh, yeah. We use uh, a lot of Bob's trip reports as, uh, yeah, as research. Yeah. So for anyone that doesn't know, Bob Bird um, flies on the radar, but he's like, I don't know. I don't use the term uh, legend lightly, but like he's a legend of like the Eastern Sierra. Yeah. Um, and his website, which dates back to like, I think the early 2000s has these like phenomenally impressive and like well-written trip reports of just about every peak. Um, and we'll link his, his website uh, in the show notes because like it's worth checking out even if you've never been out to the Eastern Sierra because that guy was up there with like, you know, like, you know, film cameras taking pictures of stuff uh, in like the early 2000s, which was super cool. So, okay. How did this project come about? Like, how are you, how did you decide, like, that's what I want to do and I want to do it for speed? Yeah. So, um, last year I started getting into FKTs around the Sierras. Uh, yeah, I guess, uh, previous guest, Jason Hardrath, um, he took notice and he climbed the 100, uh, Bulgers, which I'm sure you probably talked about at, with, um, uh, this fellow named Nathan. And so he, we, Nathan and I didn't know each other, but Jason knew that like, if the two of us were to team up on something, we could do something, um, pretty big. And this other fellow named Dan, who is from California, who has been working on the list, but now lives in New Zealand. He reached out to Nathan and I, um, with the idea of climbing the, the SPS in a single season and, said that he would sponsor us and he created the website actually and so yeah Nathan and I just at first I didn't really think that I could do it or that it was really possible um I also wasn't particularly inspired by a peak list because usually I'm more inspired by aesthetics and but I looked at the list on a map and it kind of made sense to me I was like oh this is actually kind of cool and these are mountains that I've been wanting to climb anyway and figure at the very least it would just be a, an excellent way to explore and get to know the Sierras more. And so Nathan and I, around, I think November, we met up and just started planning and then took it one day at a time. Let's get a little bit more into your background. Where are you from? So I was born in Rhode Island um, where there's there aren't any mountains, but I, when I was a kid, I was reading lots of John Muir and John Muir, of course, talks a lot about the Sierras and from a young age, they always captured my imagination and I knew that I wanted to go explore them just from reading his stories. Um, yeah. And so I did a Knowles course when I was in 17, when I was 17, that was uh, 28 days backpacking in Wyoming and that totally blew my mind and I knew that's what I wanted to do. And so I went to school in Arizona at a small college called Prescott College where I studied adventure education and wilderness leadership. And we ended up coming out to the Sierras for a class 
uh, an alpine mountaineering class where we climbed uh, Kness and Bear Creek Spire and that also blew my mind. And yeah, basically started rock climbing and made a trip out to like Yosemite Valley pretty much every year um, since I was 18 and started climbing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're recording in your van in Mammoth right now. And before this discussion, we talked a little bit about um, your plans to go up to Tuolumne um, pretty soon. Uh, so you're, you just finished the project and you're still, still getting after it. Well, I think we'll tie in with some questions I have later for you, but um, getting back to your background. So you kind of just like charted your way West. I kind of like that. What, uh, what Knowles course did you do? It was based out of Lander and we went out into the Absorca mountains. They're pretty close to the Wind River range, uh, but a little bit closer to the border, I think. How did you kind of develop like the skills needed for a project like this? Um, whether that's like planning logistics or like some of the more technical climbing. Uh, I know you obviously have like a climbing background, but was there anything that you kind of really needed to like pick up on before you started the project? Yeah, I think the project just naturally um, tended to my my skill set and like what I like to do out in the mountains. Um, so yeah, when I was 18, I started rock climbing, but I was also more of a runner because I ran cross country in high school and and so when I started climbing, I also just figured like, well, I can combine running and climbing and that's just like the best possible day out that I can imagine. And so when my friends would go bouldering or go to the crag outside town, usually it was only like the bouldering area was only like eight or nine miles up the road. So I'd just run there and meet them and climb or the crag was only like four-ish. And so I'd run up there. Um, or I would just go alone. And so basically that's what I really like to do. And I started to do bigger and bigger run slash climbs like throughout the years. And, um, basically like the project was just like a massive run climb adventure. And so I'd kind of been working up to something like this for, um, the eight years I've been climbing. But the one thing that was the most challenging for me was organizing and figuring out all the logistics. I'd never really climbed a peak list before. Um, but luckily Nathan had done the bulgers with Jason. And so he, he had like seen how it was done. Um, I kind of like followed his lead. He did a lot of the planning and I made my own plans. And then we kind of like, um, looked them both over and compared and, really refined like what we would do um yeah so you guys you guys didn't start the same time though right yeah so he started sometime in february because he was a lot more interested in skiing uh, a lot of the peaks and i think he skied about 73 and for myself i'm not as much of a skier and i was also pretty attached to see how fast that the list could go and i knew like um if you want to it to go as fast as you can you kind of need to have like better conditions or like wait for the snow to melt out so you can do peak link ups so he got to have um a lot of fun skiing and and uh i got to uh yeah just do what i like to do just like running around right because i imagine that 
skiing isn't as efficient as like tagging these peaks when the snow's melted out, right? Yeah, it's a little difficult, I think, to to like go like as fast as you can on the skis. <clears throat> How long did that um, planning process like take you guys? Because just like from an outsider's perspective, it sounds just like a logistical nightmare, like figuring out like where to drive, who's driving, like a lot of these peaks are super deep in there. So you're going to have to like time weather, right? Um, And then like, you know, if if there's a fire or something like that and you have to bail or you're kind of out there and you can't can't get to the top and have to turn around, um, like how did that how did that process uh, like affect how you, how you thought about like planning? Was there like plan A, plan B, plan C? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah. I think, so Nathan started the planning around October and at that point I was like kind of still deciding whether I wanted to do it or not. And I, so I started a little bit after in like no, November. Um, so we had like a couple, uh, like a couple months of just like, like I would just wake up pretty much every day look at my computer just like be reading about mountains like all day every day for like eight hours like trying to like really figure everything out um and I think Nathan spent just as much if not more time um but yeah like around the southern Sierra that area was a little bit difficult because a lot of the roads don't open until uh like a certain time and to because they need to like clear the roads and stuff but we wanted to get in there a little bit earlier. And so we basically like weren't sure if some of the roads would be open. Uh, so we brought bikes and I didn't if, know that whenever the, yeah, whenever the roads were closed, like we got to, up to the gate and just bike up like a couple miles to the trailhead. And we ended up, we probably ended up biking like maybe around a hundred to 200 miles total. Cause we had to do a lot of biking in the Southern area. That's cool. That's super cool. I had no idea. Um, how has your relationship with like Nathan changed over this? Um, cause I know that like, was it competitive at all or was it kind of just like, you know, two dudes having fun? Um, yeah, yeah. When, when Nathan and I first met each other in Red Rocks, actually, we, uh, we went out for a scramble out in the rain up on Rainbow Mountain and it was just so fun. Like I knew I was just going to, was going to get along with this guy and cause yeah, he's just like a really phenomenal person. I really love him a lot and yeah, our relationship grew over time and, uh, thankfully we get along really, really well. Um, and yeah, no, we were just like out there having fun, like two friends and there's definitely no like competitive feeling at all. Like, if anything, he was like, you know, like you got to beat my time. And I was like, no, I'm going to wait and I'm going to tie you. <laughs> and he was like, no, don't do that. So, you know, like we we're just, yeah, really supportive of one another and just having a grand adventure. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think that like sentiment carries over to like the ultra running world. Like there's seldom a-, a race that I've been in where like someone's out to get me, you know, it's kind of like, oh man, like I hope you, I hope you have a good run. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think yeah. that's super important, especially when you're doing kind of more like precarious stuff, like, like you guys got up to, um, what is that kind of dynamic between like climbing partners? Like, like how do you figure out whether or not you can trust someone? Yeah. 
Yeah, thankfully, Nathan is also a climber, so he has a lot of experience in that sort of partnership. We spent another, like, week or so in Joshua Tree just climbing around and, like, working on our our, our partnership and learning to trust each other, like, outside of the project. And I think that was really good for our, our development as a unit. And then, yeah, basically it just grew over time. Yeah, during, like, certain sections where you're just, like, you've been climbing technical ridge line for, like, hours and you're just, like, really tired. You really need to, like, rely on your friend to, like, keep the psych high or, like, check up, check up on you and make sure you're doing okay. And Nathan and I, like, basically, we, we found our stride um, pretty easily. And, yeah. <laughs> was it tough to split ways with him? Yeah, yeah. It was definitely um kind of emotional but i'm sure that we're gonna meet up again and and get back up to something soon yeah uh how many peaks did you have left when he finished i had 73 peaks left i had about a month to until when my parents were coming on august 12th and i really wanted to for them to be there for my finish so i basically rearranged the schedule and made sure that I was going to try to finish on the 12th. Let's hop into kind of the first part of your FKT attempt. Like how are the first couple of weeks? What was it like to kind of get your body up to speed? Yeah. Yeah. The first, so we went out to the, to, to the Whitney area um, first and we climbed Thor peak as like a really fun, easy day. There's like a five, four that goes up the middle of the face. Um, and then the next, couple days was a backpacking trip out in the Whitney area and man it was like it was so fun we were like like it was a true test of our partnership because that was the most technical rock climbing that we did um until like much later on we we uh we both climbed Fishhookerette together which was really awesome and we we're just yeah like super psyched and we climbed uh, the east buttress of Mount Whitney. And yeah, it was really hard because I wasn't quite acclimated at this point. Yeah, slowly my body got more used to it. <laughs> it's wild how that shift happens though. Like I remember, I, I feel like I've like talked about this a ton on this show already, but when I hiked the PCT, like the first two weeks were like the most brutal on my body. And then, you know, I woke up one day and just felt, bulletproof yeah um, it's cool how like you can work yourself into shape like that mm-hmm. yeah totally at first the body's kind of like what are you doing like what is happening and then yeah around that two week mark is where like it's kind of learns like how much output you need per day and how many calories you need to consume and there are some days you get back at camp after like an 18 or 20 hour day you know and you're like how how is my body going to possibly hold up tomorrow? But it's amazing with just like a little bit of sleep does and you wake up and your body is just ready to go, ready to rock and roll again. Yeah. What was your diet like during this project? We ate a lot of Oreos. It was obscene. Yeah. Basically like 6,000 to 7,000 calories a day. I could pretty much easily just eat a whole family size box of Oreos in a single sitting and then be hungry like an hour later. But I also ate a lot of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, lots of oatmeal on um, overnights and 
instant potatoes, ramen, mac and cheese. Yeah. Hiker hunger. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so in last week's episode, I talked about, uh, my penchant for, for eating what I call and what people call ramen bombs out on the trail. You familiar with what a ramen bomb is? Yeah. How many of those did you eat? Um, yeah, quite a few. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, what do you think of ramen bombs? Uh, they're good. Yeah. Yeah. I, they get the job done. Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, okay. This topic ties in nicely uh, with the uh, food program you guys decided to um, like raise money for. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, before we, before the project got going, I knew that I wanted to use the, the, the platform and the attention to, to kind of give back to the community in some way. And so I was really looking around Bishop and Mammoth for some sort of local, local organization. And I stumbled upon the Bishop, uh, Paiute food sovereignty program, which is on the reservation, uh, the Paiute Reservation in Bishop and they own a ranch and they grow their own food and um, like for them, their, their community. And it's, they're still, it's, it's still in the works and they're still like wanting to expand it. And they have lots of dreams about um, expanding their, their ranch and stuff. And so I met with them and yeah, I met with the, uh, the Paiute elders and they gave us our blessing or they gave us their blessing to to go with the with on with the the fundraiser and um, yeah it was really nice to to like give back to the community like that um, because a lot of the times like f- just for me and uh, I'm sure other people sometimes feel that like being out in the mountains or like is such like a privileged thing to be able to do and can feel like selfish at times but. When, when you're like doing it for a, a, a cause greater than yourself, it makes it a lot more special. How much money have you guys raised so far? We raised about 3500 I haven't checked. Nice. Um, I'm going to be closing the donations probably before this podcast comes out in a couple of days, but um, I, you can always donate independently. Cool. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll again include a link um, so listeners can donate. Uh, if they're inspired. Um, cool. So getting back to the project, uh, what were some like memorable experiences you guys had out there? Yeah. Yeah. There's so many. I'm still like trying to reflect and, and process, process them all. There's lots of like little things that happen that are just like funny. And then there's like, obviously like the big epic grand adventures that happened out there. The most memorable uh, peak link up was definitely the Palisades for, I think, both Nathan and, Nathan and I. Basically because there had been so much, so much leading up to them. You could see the Palisades from lots of different places in the Sierras, and those were the last peaks that Nathan was going to do. And, like, for me, pretty much two-thirds into the project. So you could see the, you can see that, like, dark granite serrated towers just, just, uh, Looming, looming yeah <laughs> looming over the all the other sierras um because yeah it includes five or six 14ers as well and so they're pretty big and very technical and i'd always heard lots of stories about them and they're sort of notorious for just being pretty epic and yeah it was a wild ride out there <laughs> did you do the palisade traverse 
Yeah, so we split up the Palisades into two different sections, uh, starting from Palisade Crest all the way down to the Thumb. So like the southern ridgeline we went out to do as a car-to-car, and then the northern ridgeline we went out to do from Temple, Gailey, Sill, all the way over to Thunderbolt, and then Agassiz. And a lot of those are like above 14,000 feet too, right? Yeah. How did you guys deal with the altitude? At that point, we were pretty well acclimated. Like beyond like after like the two-week mark, I, I think just the elevation just didn't really affect me because we were even just like camping up high, like at 10 or 11K. Yeah, just sleeping up high. What would you consider like the crux of the project? I'd say that whole, like the whole trip um, leading up to the Palisades too was like the big question mark. We called it the Odyssey. So we started um, down over in the Evolution area and uh, our goal for the, for two, we went in, to the backcountry for 12 days and climbed like the evolution traverse and like all the peaks around the evolution range and then hiked our way over to the palisades and so over the course of like two weeks it was about 48 peaks and like every single day was at least uh, like a 14 hour day and just moving through like pretty rugged terrain and i was definitely like losing sleep and um, getting like pretty tired and pretty worked throughout that whole, that whole trip. And, and we like, were walking towards what was going to be like, we thought like the biggest, uh, the biggest, um, challenge, the Palisades. So hopping into the Palisades, like on, like after two weeks of just nonstop movement and a little bit of sleep was a little scary for me. And, intimidating but we we're also like still pretty excited for them yeah and i mean if you're kind of in the backcountry too you have to carry all your food for that as well so i imagine that you're just like not eating as much as you would if you had the convenience of like bopping into a grocery store yeah we actually had the uh had the the fortune of nathan's parents coming out coming out to visit us like i think five or six days into that link up and so they actually brought us brought us some food and did gave like gave us like a little bit of a resupply nice uh so you mentioned that there's like some little moments that really stood out uh relative to like you know the grander epics what were some of those kind of like little things that you think back on now yeah just uh when nathan's family actually came out to visit us we climbed a couple couple easier peaks and we ended up seeing um, 16 um, uh, sheep out there, bighorn sheep, and just like the herd of uh, like little babies and stuff, and that was really special. We saw like uh, bop some bobcats down in the southern Sierra, and just like there were just like some funny moments too. Like like I said earlier, we were like biking a lot, and so we biked down the road after after um, climbing Moses and. Uh, it's like you're kind of on this and on the west side these roads are like small and windy and um, they're like little mountain roads there's not much room on either side and we were just like zooming down because it was downhill and we turned a corner and there's just like 12 cows in the middle of the road and they kind of turn and like look at us and just start bolting down the road and there's no way that we can pass them because the road's so small but they're all we're just like herding these like 12 cows down the road and they're like pooping and like uh mooing and like we were like we just wanted to get back to our van but 
there was no way around them. So basically we just herded these cows for like at least a mile. Like it was just pretty funny. Just um, <laughs> until modern day cowboys. <laughs> yeah. And I, I kind of felt bad for them because they just like, they just had to run for like a mile, but that was just like kind of funny. Yeah. Uh, did you find any cool stuff out there? I know that whenever I'm out in the Eastern Sierra, I always like keep an eye out for like, I don't know, just random stuff that people leave back there from like the 1800s. Yeah, we did find like remnants of an airplane crash out um, oh. outside of Mineral King. Um, there was just like a, a rotor and just like tons of metal scraps just like strewn about this ridge line. That's super cool. Um, man, did you guys uh, fall victim to the Mineral King Marmot at all? Yeah, it was actually pretty funny. Yeah, we've been warned about the Mineral King Marmot. And uh, we pulled up to the trailhead the day that the road opened. And so there was no one around. And then we went in for like a couple nights into the Kawea range. And we had forgotten to, to tarp the van because that's what people do. And we got back to... Um, like this little, this little, this, the pass that overlooks the trailhead and look down at the trailhead and just like, there's like 25 cars and they're all blue, just like wrapped in tarps. And my van is just sitting there. The only van that's not tarped, tarped up. And yeah, so for the listeners that don't know the, these marmots are like notorious for getting into people's vans and chewing on their radiator hose and just causing all sorts of havoc and so when we saw that we we're like oh man like just look at our van is like right for the picking uh, but we got down there and um there was no damage yeah you guys man you guys got lucky i know a few friends who have had that that happened to them and it's just such a bummer because you're like you know you're out in the middle of nowhere and your car doesn't work all of a sudden mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> uh, did you see a ton of people out there and like did anyone kind of ask what you guys were up to yeah we didn't really we started or well i started around april mid-april and we didn't really see anybody at all really um until maybe like june when the snow started to melt seems like that's when people start to to get out um and that's when a lot of the pct hikers come through and yeah so we it's actually kind of funny like so we to access a lot of the peaks you kind of we use the pct to like shuttle our overnight gear and then did day trips from there and so we'd be out a lot of the times just like with our day pack along the pct and the pct hikers would kind of just look at us like what are you doing out here like with just a day pack and uh we'd have to like kind of explain it to them um I'm sure that slowed you guys down a bit. Yeah, yeah. We we I we kind of stopped like explaining after a while. Yeah. We were like, oh, we're going for a run. <laughs> yeah. How much uh, of this project did you guys spend running versus like hiking? Yeah, we barely ran at all. Actually, we learned in order to to like be sustainable and like um, complete each day, you kind of need to only put in like seventy-five to eighty percent effort so that you can do it again and again and again. And there was like one or two days where we ran and like the next day we're just like so tired, like it totally just takes it out of you. Um, So it wasn't sustainable, which was one of the biggest challenges for me because 
I love running and I love going a hundred percent, but, um, yeah, we obviously weren't really able to. Yeah. Like keeping that perspective. Um, did you guys take any zero days? Yeah, I think we took probably about eight, eight to 10 Which, days. What'd you end up doing, uh, during those zero days? Um, yeah. So even those like rest days were not super restful because we still had like a lot to do. Like technically I think our effort is a supported effort, but we were pretty much self-supported. And so we had to grocery shop, do our laundry, uh, drive to the next trailhead, which could be a couple hours away. Um, upload like all of our photos, write, write trip reports, um, just like get in touch with family. And so even the rest days didn't feel super restful. Like they're still kind of busy and maybe you'll only have like an hour to like kind of check out and like play a quick game of chess or something. <laughs> you guys played a lot of chess? Uh, I, I played a lot of chess. Yeah. Whenever I had free time on just on my, my phone on okay. chess.com. I just imagine you guys like playing against each other in a van somewhere. <laughs> yeah, we ended up playing uh, a couple games. Who won most of those? Uh, I think I did. <laughs> yeah, here you go. Yeah, no need to be humble. <laughs> but I play uh, a lot, but, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, uh, let's talk. I'm sure that actually probably helped you in terms of like how you think about like climbing and stuff. Yeah, um, just like a few moves ahead all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was trying to convince Nathan that like mountain climbing is kind of like a game of chess. I like his metaphor is a little bit better. It's more of a game of like Frogger. <laughs> Just trying not to get not taken to get out. Hit, yeah. <laughs> I think both approaches are valid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what did you kind of use in the way of like gear on most of these trips? You, you mentioned like a, uh, just like a day pack and stuff. Uh, was there anything that you kind of like wish you had that you didn't bring? Um, yeah, we kept it pretty minimal. We didn't really bring any gear for any of the technical climbs because we, it was all pretty much under like five, eight. And yeah, there, there, there was one time I wish I had brought my climbing shoes for a climb that was more difficult than, than we, we thought it would be. But other than that, it was, went pretty well. I followed you guys on social media for a bit and I just kept on seeing pictures of absolutely shredded shoes. <laughs> yeah. How many shoes did you guys go through? I think I went through seven, seven or eight pairs of shoes uh, throughout the whole thing. Yeah. It's crazy how the Sierra just has a tendency to like just destroy most shoes, like regardless of like a brand, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Especially when they get wet. Yeah, totally. Did you run into any issues with like fire or anything like that? I know it's been a pretty, pretty mellow season so far. Um, yeah, a lot of friends I talked to are like, this is one of the better summers we've had out here in the last like 20 years, which bodes well for you guys. Yeah, yeah, we were very fortunate. And one of the reasons we started so early was that I wanted to finish like in early August, which is when the fires really start to kick in. Um, and yeah, we basically, we, that was part of our planning was to, to climb a lot of the mountains that are the most fire prone. So the Southern Sierra is very fire prone and we, we did those all really early on. And then, um, Nathan did, Nathan skied Tahoe and then we split up for like a week or so. And I went out and just did all of Tahoe basically like 
as soon as I could just to get those out of the way because those are the most fire prone. Um, yeah, those are pretty cruiser too, most of them. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so I want to get into some like, I guess, bigger picture questions. Um, but I don't want to put you on the spot or anything. But like, how has this experience like changed your outlook on, on life, really? Yeah, no, that's a great question. That's something I've like been reflecting on. Um, well, yeah, kind of like I said earlier, like when I was approached with this project, like I didn't think that I would actually be able to do it. I maybe would have given myself a 30 to 40% chance. Um, but Nathan seemed like he was psyched and I was excited to at least try. And at the very least I was like, you know, I'll climb 30, 50 peaks and, you know, have a great time. Um, and basically, yeah, just took it one day at a time. Um, was having lots of fun and so I found myself at like 50 peaks and I was like, okay, now let's shoot for like a hundred. Um, and then, yeah, I kept on going, found myself there, eventually found myself halfway at like 120. And then at that point I was like, well, I actually might be able to do this. Um, and then just, yeah, I kept digging deep and, um, took it one day at a time. And so I realized basically like, something that I want to share with others and about what I learned and just apply in my life is that like we you know like our limits are just like limited by what we say that we can do and like really like us as humans have have like so much more potential for anything in life really that um that we want to pursue it can be like I don't know cooking or whatever your, like, your passion is, like, if you just put in the work, put in the energy and, like, really love what you're doing, like, you can do, you can do, like, incredible things. And that's, that's one of my biggest takeaways. That's a great answer. How has it changed your relationship with the Sierra? Like, how will you think of that mountain range now? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's incredible. It's like, um, driving driving even just like through town you can see the tops of like the little all like some mountains like bloody mountain and just look at it and just like it just makes me so happy to to think that that mountain was like part of this experience and like driving down the east side basically like all all the high points or like all the mountains were mountains that were part of this project and it kind of just like blows my mind to know that like I had been up there at some point and so I'm just like, every time I see a mountain that was included in the project, it's going to make me smile and just to know that like it had been like a character in this story, basically. Um, and then, yeah, just in general, like I feel a lot more comfortable out there too now. And I've definitely like seen things that are that are like intriguing and have a lot more ideas for for bigger things that can be possible out there as well. Yeah, I mean, what you did takes people like a lifetime to accomplish. Um, is there any kind of like feeling that like, oh, I wish I kind of had savored it more? Or did you get that kind of like criticism at all? Like, why would you do this like as fast as you can when you can like, you should be out there cherishing every summit? Uh, I haven't gotten that criticism yet. Um, but uh, yeah, no, no. It happens a lot in like trail running when, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's happened to me a few times when I've been like running on a trail and, and someone will, will ask me to like slow down and mm-hmm. like 
savor the nature and i'm like i don't know this is just like a way i like to move through this environment yeah that that sentiment used to to rile me up um especially i i I hiked the appalachian trail when i was uh, a couple years ago on 2018 and i did it in 102 days and so you know i was like uh hiking maybe like 30 plus miles a day and a lot of the other through hikers would say that same thing to me, like, why, like, why don't you chill out and enjoy it? And at first it would get me all riled up, but now it's like, I'm, I'm a little desensitized to it. Like, I, I know that a lot of people saying that they, they just don't get it or it's coming from a place of like, like maybe, I don't know, just judgment. And that's just, that's, I, I, I'm pretty comfortable with how I like to enjoy uh, mountains and other people can say what they want, but I'm going to, going to do what I want to do and they can do what they want to do. I'm, I'm not telling anyone to to hurry on up. Uh, Right. It's that idea of like hike your own hike. Exactly. Yeah. And every trail running or uh, the like through hiking community gets said, like (laughs) kind of gets beat to death. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so I mean, this project took you how many days? It was 117 days. Okay, so like roughly the amount of time it took you to hike like a long trail. Um, did you have any kind of post-project blues after you finished? Yeah, I think I think being um, now only like six days done with the project, um, I'm starting to to sort of experience that a little bit. Um, I've just tra- been trying to keep myself busy and I've given myself, um, this, this week to rest. And I know once I get back up into Tuolumne and start moving again, I'll, I'll feel a lot better. Um, but yeah, I'm just forcing myself to sit down for now and just kind of like do like writing and cleaning up my van and figuring out my life a little bit more before I head back out again. Yeah. What are some upcoming projects you have? Yeah, I've got a couple of ideas in Tuolumne. Um, there's the Tuolumne triple triple, which is like a link up of lots of mountains back there. Um, it links like the t- classic Tuolumne triple with the backyard triple with the Alpine triple. Um, <laughs> uh, so that sounds like a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Should be a fun day. Um, and then, yeah, there's, uh, there's another like bigger project I'm kind of thinking about doing. Um, but I might want to just keep it on the down low for now in case I don't want to do it. For sure. Yeah. That's something I, I experienced when I, uh, like set out to through hike the PCT. Like I kind of publicize it more than I normally would just Mm -hmm. to hold myself accountable and like, yeah. almost like blackmail myself be like all right like if i put this out there i have to do it mm-hmm. so i understand that i understand that approach yeah um, no i think that can be a powerful tool too to like uh when you share what you're going to do it like and other people know about it then they'll hold you accountable and it can be good motivation um you just have to i think the crux is you have to make sure like before you share it's something that like you really want to do so you got to spend time with the idea and like think about it and let it sort of like cultivate. And then once you're ready, then you can like use the uh, sharing as like a springboard to get you going. At least for yeah. me. 
uh, before uh, we get out of here, I do want to comment on the hat you're wearing. Uh, Big Willie Gear Shop in Lone Pine. Uh, I love that place. Blair's the man. Uh, did you uh, get a chance to chat with him for a bit? Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, pretty early on in the project, I stopped in the shop because I needed some new glasses, and I was looking for like a book. And he he recognized me and as um, and like what I was doing, and he was super nice. Uh, we had a good chat, and he actually gave me this hat for free, and so I just decided to to wear it pretty much throughout the whole the whole journey <laughs> did he give you a beer yeah he did <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah he's uh he's a character um but knows that area like better than like almost anyone i mm-hmm. think yes <laughs> cool man well thanks for chatting with me uh did you have anything else you kind of wanted to get into before we uh wrap up this conversation uh no yeah i'm just uh thankful to to have the chat with you and yeah i hope like again like yeah people can uh take a little bit of like what i've learned is just like if you really want to do something or like aren't sure that you can do it like just take it one day at a time and you might surprise yourself what were the final stats of your project yeah so i think i hiked about 1800 miles and climbed about 700,000 feet of vert (laughs) that's insane in 117 days Mm -hmm. cool i don't see that record falling anytime soon i'll let you go yeah it was great to chat with you that's it for this edition of off the couch thanks to travis for the conversation thanks to justin bob for producing this episode and from everyone here at blister please take good care of yourself keep moving forward and we'll talk to you again next week